Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit. Apply within two bills. If cancel early, remaining amounts due. Unlimited basic after 630 20 Pay $32 per month per line for five lines with auto-pay data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums. Use rules and restrictions apply. Right now, you can get both Sprint's unlimited plan and the all-new Samsung Galaxy S10 included for just $35 per month per line for five lines. All you need is approved credit and 24-month installment billing. No trade-in required. Visit a Sprint store, Sprint.com, or call 800-SPRINT-1. Phone $15 a month after $22.50 a month credit. Apply within two bills. If cancel early, remaining amounts due. Unlimited basic after 630 Pay $32 per month per line for five lines with auto-pay data deprioritization during congestion. Speed maximums. Use rules and restrictions apply. listening to Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, keeping you up to date with the latest in American soccer. And don't forget to subscribe. Welcome to 2018 Uncle Sam's Soccer Podcast, Armand. And boy, do we have a special announcement. Well, actually, we have two. We have a special interview and then a nice announcement. An announcement. First, the announcement. We're adding a new member to the Uncle Sam Soccer Podcast A new member. New New member, Jake Watroba, out in Minnesota. So now you got three areas of the United States covered up here in Wisconsin, down in Dallas, I guess Dallas is an area, not necessarily a state, but now Minnesota. So we're hoping to bring you some more Minnesota contact. We're uh, so excited to have Jake on board. He loves the sport, uh, truly a fan. Uh, you can follow him at Twitter at Jake Watroba, uh, J-A-K-E-W-A-T-R-O-B-A. We'll put it in the description. T-R-O-B-A. Might as well finish the oh name Oh, my now. gosh. But a uh, special interview, Armand, and it is Steve Gans. Well, yeah, first off with Jake, glad to have him on. He's already been giving us great ideas, so we're a pleasure. Pleasure to be with you. Pleasure to work with you. And, yeah, Steve <laughs> Gans, man, it's it's a fascinating interview. We, we talk about all the different aspects, and we spend a good chunk on youth development because that seems to be a big part of his platform. But he made sure, and he clarified, that's not the only part of his platform, but he, and he does look at the overall game as lacking in terms of certain areas. And remember, hey, let's, let's, let's not get this twisted. Gans wanted to run even before this, uh, the debacle, the debacle. Yeah. He wanted to run before. And he's been, sorry to interrupt, but he's been asked to run for some time. So, I mean, think about it. This guy has been asked to run all this time. He ends up what, announcing his running in Mayish before anyone else. So I mean, you could tell he's very dedicated to the game, and he talks about his when he used to watch the NASL, which we can't forget about. I think that's one thing we can't forget about. He, and he talks about all these issues regarding the DA, regarding high school soccer, college soccer. We bounce with the NASL and the 
the potential of having an open or uh, open pyramid. Talk about women's game as well. I think we talk about almost everything. No, we do, and, and it's a fantastic insight into one of the eight candidates, and that in a situation and in time where it seems almost and virtually impossible to separate a lot of those candidates and their ideas apart because a lot of it is just tweeting and we often know tweeting doesn't necessarily reflect the real opinion and nor does well, it, it reflects my real opinion well okay besides for Armand's um, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily reflect the opinion of the general public or reflect you know the message and often words can be misunderstood so it's when you can get somebody one-on-one to get them to open up about their platform, uh, especially in any election-type process. It's enlightening. It, yeah, it's very enlightening. Well, listeners, joining us right now is Steve Gantz. Uh, he's been involved with soccer f- since the 70s. He's represented uh, with his law firm, the professional youth-level soccer clubs in the U.S. and England. He, in fact, played college soccer at Cornell and Brandeis, played in the youth system for the New England T-Men. Uh, he helped g- bring the World Cup to Boston. He is running for USFF president. How's it going, Steve Gans? going fine thanks for doing that deep research with me you have to do deep research so i appreciate that well you got quite a be here guys oh thank you so much but you got quite of a history with the sport uh yeah i do you know i I like to think that in my own um uh somewhat uh non-flamboyant way uh it's deeper than really any other candidate because what i like to say i've done everything in the sport other than be a professional referee so i i think i get (laughs) Just about every, and that's true. And I, I get every perspective from player to management to executive to parent to club board member to Premier League executive to again and frustrated parent who needs advice, which I which I do pro bono all the time to parents confused by the youth system. And so, um, you know, I, I I think I get all those perspectives and and have been fortunate to spend really my whole life in the game um, since my dad exposed me to it. And yeah, on the talk of your dad, you said that uh, you said that your dad uh, he came from Germany and played a big role in you uh, loving soccer and introducing you to the game. So, what about soccer do you love so much? Well, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, it it uh, notwithstanding the fact that he exposed me to it, he took me to games every weekend. And in those days, you'd see big international games. They weren't on TV. They were, you know, we're talking about the early seventies. Um, in mid seventies, they were, they were, you know, it piped into ballrooms, uh, at hotels and, and, um, so I was inspired by the game, but, but I really played baseball more because there wasn't that much soccer around. And then when I, uh, saw in person, a really, uh, good game, it was a North American soccer league game in the seventies, a, a team came to town here in Boston. I just, a light switch went off and, you know what? What do I love about it? Uh, you know, I think it's what everybody loves about it. It's the international language. It's, it's, um, you know, to this day, you know, my my career, I ended up having, <clears throat> you know, my statistics more impressive for surgeries and broken legs. They're bigger numbers than the goals and assists I had in the pros. But um, 
you know, and one time I was operated on a doctor said, you know, the way your hips are built, you should have stayed playing baseball, but I don't regret it at all because, um, uh, to me, one of the most exciting things, uh, whether you're, you're playing formally and pro or whatever it is, or you're playing pickup, the fact that you can go out to a field and, and play a pickup game and there might be people, uh, speaking four or five, six languages, different ethnicities, and some may not speak the same language as you, um, English, in my case, uh, but, but you all can communicate through the, through the beautiful game. It really is the international language. And, you know, there's that part of it, which to me, to this day, is thrilling and always excited me and, you know, opened a world to me. And then the other part is just, it's, uh, it's just the greatest sport. It's the hardest sport. <laughs> uh, they call it the simplest game because all you need is a ball. But it's really, to me, the most complex game mm. because it's free-flowing and a huge, large field. And, um, you know, vision and uh, decision-making you have to make um, is so difficult in, in mastering all the skills. And so when you see them do it at a very high level, it's just extraordinary. So I think, you know, those are common themes that other people have, but that's what kind of inspired me. And, and once I did that, um, and, you know, I still love baseball. It's, 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 it's second to me, but um, it's, it's a... Uh, you know, it's a distant second uh, to soccer. I'm assuming you call the Boston sports teams your favorite. I think that's largely true. I think for me, um, uh, definitely the Red Sox and the Celtics uh, are the two major um, of the traditional, you know, uh, mm. four sports that, that most people grew up with here. Um, yeah, I think the Red Sox are, you know, I look at, there's a lot of pride when you're from Boston. You look like what what what's the deepest ingrained in the culture here, and certainly the Red Sox and the Celtics. Mm. Um, I happen to love the Bruins growing up because I grew up in the Bobby Orr era, and if you grew up in, in when Bobby Orr was a player here, then, then you know you you you're kind of inspired by that. But to me, yeah, the, the yeah love all the Boston teams, but uh, foremost Red Sox and Celtics. It's funny because I was born in Beverly, so um, my my parents are also oh. first. my parents are immigrants, so Boston was there. American hometown. I was born there, so I love the Boston sports team. So I, I had to ask you. <laughs> uh, that's great. Where, where are they from? Switzerland. Oh, very cool. So and where yeah. are you based now? Uh, well, right now we're. My parents are in Milwaukee, and I'm studying at Madison. But we've moved around the country quite a bit. But for us, Boston is is our American hometown, no doubt about it. Right. Right. Got it. But right. let me. Great. Great. Yeah. Let me ask you culturally, economically, and overall the. Sp- the growth of the sport has tremendously changed since your youth and especially in the last 20 years. Do you like the direction we're going with the sport here in America? No, no I certainly don't uh, like the direction we're going in overall. Uh, you know, I, I would say that, you know, and, and, and this is uh, certainly not blowing smoke because, you know, I first announced my presumptive candidacy in May and all the other uh, um, uh, candidates who I'm, who I respect each one of them, but they all jumped in after the U.S. lost in October, and you know I was talking about problems well before the U.S. lost, and and the U.S. lost, um, you know that was not a moment frozen in time, that was a manifestation of the things I was talking about, and no, I'm not I'm not happy with the way youth soccer is going. I think there's a lot of fractiousness. I think there's a lot of confusion. I think there's a lot of needless competition among sanctioned organizations. That's holding the game back. I think there are attrition issues, alarming attrition issues with youth players. I think uh, all the way up to the Development Academy, I was on the board of the Development Academy team, I'm a parent of two Development Academy players. I think it's very dysfunctional and needs to be 
fixed. So I think there are problems there. And obviously, uh, you know, at least on the men's national team side uh, and, and player development side, we, you know, we're not in good shape. We've, we've had, uh, uh, we have an inverse relationship. We have a, an organization that's got the largest surplus it's ever had, and yet it just had its worst result it's ever had. So um, you know, I think a lot of things do, do need to change. Now, now that said, um, you know, obviously, and I've met tons of people. I've been doing this since May. You know, there are great people involved in this sport. Uh, and, and most of them are volunteers. They all need to be respected, and I've I've gotten some great ideas from many of them. And uh, uh, I I I I think there are, what I am excited about is there's a, there's a higher level of of, of competency um, in the sport uh, than there used to be. Um, but a lot of those people are are voting delegates, and they're not getting a fair shake from U.S. Soccer. I think. That there really needs to be change, and that you know that was kind of my theme from the beginning. It's time for change, and uh, we're certainly going to get change because the incumbent is not running. Uh, the question is, uh, is it going to be good change, or is it going to be you know um, maybe not as good as it could be? So um, it's definitely time for change. We we need to improve things, and uh, you know I, I think I'm the one to do it. So you talked about the youth de- development, and uh, many people point to youth development as a huge issue in terms of the uh, of the uh, for the United States. And many people have countered with the argument of the young players in uh, in the system right now that are going off to Europe and are, are playing uh, pretty well. So your main thing is mainly just the the youth development as uh, a key issue. Is that correct? No, that's not my main. That's not my main thing. I mean, I, I no. Um, you know, this is. By the way, this is a. This is a nonprofit organization, um, and so by its definition, it has to stay close to its original mission and purpose as it was formed. You know, uh, uh, in the Articles of Organization a hundred years ago, and that mission and purpose is not only about creating national team players. That's part of what U.S. Soccer does, but it. But it's 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 creating playing and um, healthy athletic opportunities for kids and adults and, and that sort of thing. And so, no, I'm not just concerned about the development of players at the end of the funnel. I'm concerned about what's happening to kids at U7, U8, U9. What, why, are, why are kids leaving the sport alarmingly between U6 and U12? Why is 75% leaving at U13? Um, so I'm concerned about all, all of the youth stuff. I'm concerned about the fact that the Federation has not – uh, gotten involved with uh, looking beneath that top line of registration numbers and solve the infighting between the, the sanctioning organizations that fight for the same players, leagues, and and uh, clubs um, to to the ultimate confusion. When you have parents calling you and saying, you know, uh, w- uh, what is what is the NEP? What is the NPL? What is the ECNL? What is the DA? Um, what is you know, this league, what is that league? And um, why are there two state cups in my state? I don't get it. Those are a function of sanctioning organizations not getting along and, and competing. And uh, the confusion is, is hurting both the enjoyment of kids who aren't necessarily going to be um, uh, national team players and, and also the development of players who could. And one thing I will say is those players at the end of, the, at the end of that funnel – and again, my older son is a very successful college player now, but he and a lot of teammates, I see this, you know, they're going through the development academy right now creates a lot of technically good players, but they play without joy. 
and we've got to fix that as well. You know, we have a guy like Messi that goes through the biggest academy in the world, most serious academy, and he comes out playing with joy, and we're creating players without joy. So, you know, I, I think this is an equal opportunity concern for rec players who are young, who want to stay in the game, for adult players who, after they're done and they're amateur, they want to stay in cradle to grave, and we want them to stay in their whole lives, and then those players who are the elite players. We're not creating players that, that, that have the... The, uh, the joy that would allow them to really become top-class, world-class players. As you hey, know, you can't be a, you get a great player you know, playing robotically. So Right, right, right. Yeah, no, you're fine. And so you talked about the, the, the DA and your issues behind it. You've mentioned it in, the, on, in an interview with 442, and you have experience. You do, ha- you were, you do have two kids that played uh, in, in the DA, and yeah. you talked about some of the more ridiculous structures uh, enforced in the DA, including uh, the banning of the high school uh, soccer players. So, could you elaborate with your uh, with some of the solutions to the issues involved with the DA? Sure. I mean, I definitely have my I definitely have my uh, uh, strong thoughts about that. But I do want to say, I mean, I think I know how to fix the DA. But but as to all, I, I think I know how to fix a lot of things. But as to all of these, I'm not going to come in uh, like an autocrat. That's not what people want anymore. They want um, right. You know, they 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 want people to to uh, come in, form, you know, br- bring in people, form task force and committees, listen to other people as well. So what I'll tell you is my thoughts, which, which ultimately I will share with the committee and, you know, we'll debate it and see if I'm right or people think I'm right. Um, you know, the, the, the strictures that I'm talking about that I've lived uh, as a DA board member and parent for seven years or did live for seven years, um, you know, where every half season or every season they come down with another restriction. And they were edicts coming down from Chicago, 30,000 feet in the air, de- devised in a boardroom, not consulting the people in the trenches. And what I mean by trenches is highest respect. I was someone in the trenches, right? Because I'm a dad of, of, uh, of kids who play, and I'm at all these academy games, and I'm a board member. And, and yet all of a sudden they come in with some new, new rule. And those, all those new rules, by the way, the high school thing, I definitely want to liberalize that and, and relax that rule I, I, I get the logic behind that. That's not the one that I say is a utterly, I wouldn't call that utterly ridiculous. I, I would call it kind of un-American because you're taking away something that's quintessentially American, a chance to play for your school, and therefore you're taking some joy away. You're sucking joy out. Um, and when you contrast a high school game to a typical development academy game, you know, it, it's starkly different. Development academy games, you know, very, very uh, sterile, uh, antiseptic. The parents are tense. They don't cheer because um, they're so invested. If it's not uh, the spring, if it's the fall, there are no college coaches there because they're in their season. So you've got this sterile environment. You have one USSF assessor. You've got kids playing well, but there really isn't that that passion. Um, and then, you know, in a high school game, the quality is generally not not as good, but the, but the reality is these kids learn to um, play in front of 500 people you know you might have 40 people at an academy game and they're all parents except for the USSF assessor and at a high school game you know you'll have you can have 200 500 or they have a night game once a year it could be a thousand or more those kids learn to play um you know in 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 front of crowds which is something that I always had difficulty in my own career and I've seen now my my older son you know master that and I think that's tremendous um the edicts that so so getting back to the the ban on high school, I don't, I don't agree with it, but but I wouldn't call it utterly ridiculous. There was logic behind it. The logic was that 
you know, they felt like we weren't developing quickly enough. And those three months you play in high school, you get, uh, you know, comparatively inferior coaching, training, and competition. I think as a general rule compared to the development academy, that's, that's correct. You know, I mean, in most cases, the development academy is higher level than high school. But you've got to look at the opportunity cost. The opportunity cost is taking something, you know, quintessentially American away from a kid's experience harms uh, his you know, his happiness or her happiness, and it also, um, you know, can, can even latently cause resentment for the sport that's become so demanding in their lives. So I think you, you suck the joy out. The other part is, again, um, I think you learn something from playing uh, in front of a crowd. Now, that does dovetail into the things that I think that are utterly ridiculous. And so these strictures that come from Chicago, I know, because uh, I know the person that was involved that devised them, what they're saying sitting in that room is, oh, they're not, perf- you know, we're not doing well enough. Let's make them more professional. So they make these strictures that are aimed to make these kids um, more professional, uh, and and they, and they're counterproductive on paper. That might make sense, but the reality is they have a huge uh, negative impact to the kids, um, and they've completely discounted, for instance the fact that while the quality of the high school game uh, might not be as good, the fact that you're playing in front of 500 people as opposed to 40 parents who just are holding onto the fence and not even uttering a word because they're so tense. Um, and that's true. I, you know, I've been a million of those games. Yeah, I bet. Um, I wasn't one of them, though. I wasn't one of them. I had my arms folded. So I don't hold on the fence. But anyway, um, but uh, the... the um, the reality is if the aim is to make these kids more professional and be ready for a pro environment, that aspect of high school is much more professional uh, training um, than what happens in an academy game. So let me give you one example because I don't want to you know, waste your time on too much. But um, one of the strictures that was introduced is that you know, they created the FIFA rule. You know, the only clubs that um, have the FIFA rule for substitution is, uh, is the development academy. You know, in most youth club soccer, if you get subbed out, Coach can put his arm around you and say, look, you've been overlapping on the left side more than I want you to. You know, take the space when it's in front of you, but, but don't overlap every single time because you're making recovery runs and, you know, you're putting us in jeopardy. Puts the arm around the kid's shoulder, U14, puts him back in. But in the development academy at U14, once you take a kid out, he's done, okay? And just like in FIFA rules. And that, to me, is utterly ridiculous. It's counterproductive. The tension these kids feel, and that goes all the way up to U18 um, or U19, because, again, in the American system, they're not just looking to play for their academy. They've got college coaches looking at them, and they're completely tense about whether they're going to get in the game or whether they're going to be pulled. If the idea from U.S. soccer was we want to make sure these kids are professional and and they know they're going to get the hook if they don't have their heads in the game and, and start off well, so we're going to put that pressure on them uh, so they'll get pulled, you know, in 15 minutes and they can't go back in. Well, that could be achieved by, not by rule, but by coach's decision. In other words, if, if you pull that kid for overlapping too much and you don't have that rule, but you, you know, you, you said to Johnny before the game, Johnny, if you don't start well, I'm going to pull you. If you don't have your head in the game, I'm going to pull you. If you don't listen to what I told you, I'm going to pull you. That coach can still do it, right? He can take them out and put him back in or he can decide not to. But when you do it by rule, when you have these strictures that are, quote, aimed to get these kids more professional, 
you know, I can't tell you how many, because I coached a lot of these kids growing up, and I can't tell you how many kids have come to me and say, hey, the Cornell coach is at this game, the Tufts coach is at this game. I don't know if I'm going to get in. I don't, you know, th- these kids are petrified. And it's, if you have six out of 22 Development Academy kids by the end of U19 who are happy in a Development Academy club, in my experience, that's a lot. And there's something wrong with that. So um, all, these, all these things aimed at professionalizing uh, the kid's mindset. There isn't a kid around that plays, that plays serious club soccer that doesn't know the FIFA rule that once you're substituted in a, in a, in a real, in a, in a, you know, once you're a professional, you can't go back in. That making that rule for U14 or even U18 kid here, to me, is, is counterproductive given the way the U.S. system and education system works. And that's just one of those rules. So I would, I would presumptively change that. But again, I'm not going to be doing it autocratically. I will sit around and We'll see if people agree. Maybe there'll be a counterpoint that said, no, Steve, you don't get that. Uh, here's, here's this. But I, I can tell you, I've seen enough kids that needed distance from the academy to get their joy back. And um, so I'm pretty, sh- pretty sure of myself that, that this is one that is a mistake. Well, I, it's very interesting because uh, where Armand and I finished high school is in North Texas, and it's a very huge and massive hotbed for youth soccer, especially with the SC Dallas Academy. And uh, the Region 2 soccer director of the high school, Fred Kaiser, who we had on the show, uh, we discussed with him about the issues. And he said they lose quite a bit of high school players every, like, quite a bit compared to other areas of the country and even in the state to the academy and not being able to play high school and and it feels like you you know the high school game is almost getting i don't know what you say it's getting thrown off and then what would you, what's your response to the college game because that's the next level but at age 18 19 20 in Europe you're making your professional debut right right no you you are making a professional debut i mean look there there's you know, my son just had an amazing freshman year, and he he, he led his school to the the, the Division Three Final Four, as or helped lead, I should say, his freshman. You know, so it was an extraordinary first first year for him. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, what I can say is, you know, I'm, I'm certainly troubled by a lot in in the college game. But I think one thing that's important to point out is that when I talk about adjusting for what makes America different, if you're 16 years old and you're in the Everton, Everton Academy and you're still with Everton, then you've made a decision. You're either going to be a footballer or you're going to be a tradesman. You're not going to end up going to college. And, and that's true in many, many places in this world. That's not true in America, right? Most, most kids are, um, if they're in the development academy, whether or not they want to be pros, they're trending to, to college. Um, and, and, and that's just a fact. And, and that's something that, that, that makes things different here. So, for instance, when U.S. soccer goes out and studies Belgium and says, you know, we got to do it like um, Belgium, well, in my opinion on that is, again, it's more ignorance to just wholesale institute stuff because Belgium's an 11 million uh, uh, population country and, you know, they, they've created all these world-class players. There is a reason to study it. There's a reason to study Iceland, okay? But what you take from it, you take and you apply it, modulating it, for what makes America different. And what, 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 one of the things that makes America different is, is you know, the emphasis on education here. 
Um, and you, and you got to realize that, you know, be, so it would be one thing if these kids having the pressure on them were just playing for their academy and, and the pros. But, but what happens is they're playing for the development academy, the showcase in Sarasota for the development academy that happens in December and otherwise, you know, traditionally um, in, in uh, either Indiana or Dallas, I think it's being moved now, but in the, in the spring, those are done to, you know, it's showcase for colleges. The overwhelming number of kids are, are headed to college. So for better or worse, that's the path of most, play, uh, of most players. I mean, you know, my problem with college right now, yes, I do agree the season is short. It's not an easy, <coughs> easy fix. My problem right now is I think that the emphasis in college in America right now is much too much. It's, I mean, in my day, certainly the players weren't as good, but in some ways I think the play was better. Um, right now the emphasis seems in most cases to be on athleticism and physicality and, you know, long goalkeeper punts on turf and winning those punts than it is on the technical play. Um, And that's regrettable uh, because, you know, this is a beautiful sport when it's played well technically. No, absolutely, absolutely, Stephen. We just want to wrap up our talk, um, the topic of the DA and whatnot, because uh, actually in July of last year, we actually spoke to the, dire- uh, the DA director, Jared Miklas, and we straight up asked him if the DA was there to develop American players or just soccer players, and he said it was their job to develop soccer players with the hope that they represent the red, white, and blue. Do you see this as an issue at all with the uh, funding that they received from the USSF? You mean as as a you mean well the development academy is is developing players for the U.S. national team, right? Uh, yes, but uh, when we spoke with Jared Miklas, he said uh, he said it to, he said it was to develop soccer players with the hope that they represent the red, white, and blue. Right, right, and and so I suppose that means if 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 a, if a kid is of uh, dual citizenship or or not that they, that 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 kid would be able to play somewhere else, like for Mexico or something like Correct. that. Is that what you mean? Correct. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you, you, uh, <clears throat> I certainly, <clears throat> excuse me, as a cold, um, <laughs> certainly wouldn't want a kid who is from a meritocratic basis, uh, good enough to, um, you know, to, uh, uh, make a development academy team who still has the ability, um, to, uh, play, um, somewhere else to exclude him, I think that would be discriminatory. For instance, if you look here in Boston, Diego Fagundes, um, who I believe his family is from Uruguay, correct me if I'm wrong, you yeah. got mm-hmm. to know, he actually was, he was with my, uh, Boston Bolts and then he went to um, the Revolution. And then at a certain point, he, you know, and obviously he was developed through the DA for, for uh, purposes of uh, playing in the U.S. system and maybe making it to a national team and playing pro and MLS and all that. Um, but, I, but he had his option, and I think, I think he had opted to play uh, for a younger level for, for Uruguay. You know, I think that, that happens and it can happen, and um, I, I think what Jared said is probably accurate. I don't really seem to have a problem with that. Um, you certainly wouldn't want to deny someone on, mer- on merit basis. If you look at... Um, you know, Kaderi of, of uh, um, um, and I could be wrong about this, but I believe that, you know, he had a choice of playing for Turkey or Germany, right? That's not a very uncommon thing. Mm-hmm. And you would never, Sammy Kaderi, you would, ne- you would never have a situation right. where they would, um, 
not develop a player. They want to convince them uh, that that uh, you know that they'll play for the country, but that doesn't mean they always will. And you know, look at look at the players Klinsmann brought in. Those are all Germans who hoped to play for the German national team, <clears throat> but weren't picked for the German national team, so they had the dual potential dual citizenship mm. and they did it. But but it would be wrong uh, not to have them develop. So I I, I don't have a I don't have a problem with that. I mean, it's it's an issue that I think a lot of federations are are facing when it comes to immigrants or you know first generation of whatever the country. I know Switzerland, Germany, France, uh, they yep. they're having a huge issue with a lot of you know the immigration and then the players and then you know there's only so many times you can try to cap one player. You know, once they get cap tied, that's kind of it. With the United States, yep. we're starting to see the same problem. Right. No, to- to- totally understood. But I, you know, I think it's a two-way street, right? Right. If 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 you think a, if a kid's good enough, you know, and you fast track him, and you know, then you identify him, and then you know, you want to lock him up and convince him this is the place to be, right? But mm-hmm. but if uh, if um, if if you can't do that, or you decide, and this one mean by two two-way street that he's not going to be picked for the or she's going to be picked for the full national team, then they should be free to do the other thing. There's a, there's a player from Israel, you know, I think he pulled his groin right away, but all of a sudden he was, um, Arena brought him in, and, and uh, you know, he's, I don't think he's ever lived in the U.S., and, but he decided, well, better opportunity in the U.S. than, than, uh, than, than, than Israel. Um, you know, those things, those things happen. It's to the federations to convince the players that this is where they should be, and, and if, they can't do that, or they pass on them. Then th- those those people uh, should be free agents. I mean, the, th- the thing about it, though, is that we, sh- you know, given the country we are, we should be able to convince most of those guys mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. stay in play here. Right. You know, right. I think I think that Giuseppe Rossi, right, is an example mm. of someone who grew up in New Jersey and then blossomed and. Um, and then played for Italy, right? But those examples at this point are not, um, you know, for for player to grow up here and then be able, be able to play for a major, major country where, you would, where they believe at this time they have a chance to win a World Cup. You know, that, that would be a uh, dilemma that uh, I think we'd love to have, right? Because that would mean that we're creating full world-class players. I don't think we're doing that yet, you know, for unfortunately. So I think the dilemma is a little less than um, than uh, than what it could be, but you know I think if we we should be able to, in most cases we should be able to convince um, those players that we want that this is the place to be and and can you imagine you know you bringing the U.S. national team to glory what that would mean for you in this country? Uh, be fantastic. It'd be a dream that a lot of us fans would love yep. to see. But uh, I, I want to ask. I want to move it on to the the current state of the national team. Uh, obviously, the mm-hmm. men's side failed to qualify for the World Cup. I know we've had a lot of reaction from everybody from the media sector. But I wanted to ask you: Did Sunil Gulati handle the failure correctly in your eyes? You mean afterwards? Afterwards, yes. I, I don't know if I I don't know if I have opinion on that. I mean, I. I uh... I think uh, a lot of people believe that, uh, just like Bruce Arena essentially stepped aside, that 
that he should have stepped aside right away, but he didn't. But he ultimately did the right thing by stepping aside, right? So he's mm-hmm. not running. Um, is, is, I mean, is that where you're coming from? In well, of- well, I wanted to ask you because uh, there was a lot of Chris, uh, criticism of Galati in the sense that he didn't step down immediately uh, with the handling of of Bruce Arena following the 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 game and then the blame being pushed on him versus the players and the coach just just curious on just how everything was handled and if you would have done anything differently i mean i i i think that i would have um well i think what this happened in early october and i think he decided not to run in december so it went on two months honestly i don't think i would have done it the same way he did it i would have i mean my whole pledge here is that i'm going to the buck's going to stop with me and Mm -hmm. i'm going to be accountable and, you know, part of that is if there's a Senate hearing like there was after the FIFA scandal and the current president didn't show up, I will show up to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the buck stops with me. So, you know, I can't say that um, as to that particular uh, incident and then say, well, the, bu- the buck stops with you and then you don't do it. So I, I think in short order I would have, yes, resigned or, mm-hmm. or said I'm not going to run it. Mm-hmm. I certainly wouldn't have gone two months deciding. But, you know, that's... You know, that's my pledge. My pledge is the buck's going to stop with me. <laughs> mm. And speaking to your pledge, in your uh, platform statement, you do mention you want to lead a transparent, ethical, uh, lead a transparent, ethical, and highly competent matter for the advancement of soccer of all levels in this country. And recently, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it, we've been talking about transparency a lot uh, with, with Kathy Carter. We've also talked about with Winalda today, uh, who came out and said that he's been receiving money from Ricardo Silva. Uh, who is the owner of Miami FC in the NASL? So when you talk when you talk about transparency, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, I think um, a lot of things. Uh, um, first of all, running a nonprofit organization like it's supposed to be run is transparency, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a privately owned uh, company. This is a nonprofit organization. There are no stockholders right. or owners if if there are any owners it is the public nonprofit organizations have public missions therefore by definition they should be run openly and transparently so that's that's one part open books um, open thinking uh, open communication with respect to how it works in terms of um, just doing the right thing uh, you know the, the, if you if you go out and you talk to delegates um, in the youth council, in the adult council, in the athletes council, and in some cases in the pro council. <clears throat> if you do that, you hear this uniform complaint, and that is that <clears throat> that they're not respected, that they're not listened to, <clears throat> that they're not included in decision making as to pro- programmatic and other decisions that will affect them, what they do. And that by itself is not transparent. So, you know, I'm pledging this open, iterative, um, respectful, uh, two-way communication uh, administration, and that is transparency. If, 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 uh, if, if you're a Development Academy parent and you get this edict from Chicago, oh, now it's got to be fee for rule this. If you are a state association and you wake up one day and you're told that the SRA uh, – you know, the, the referee assessing program is going to be taken away from the states and it's going to be made central uh, without any, uh, because there are, quote, problems. It's an edict that comes down from Chicago. If you're a state association and you ran the ODP program and one day you were told, 
hey, we're starting this development academy. Um, why? Because there are problems. That they never talked about the problems. Then that, that's not transparent. The way I would do it, and I'm not saying, by the way, I'm not saying that development academy shouldn't have been started, but if, but if I were to do that, I, you know, I would have said, look, we're not happy with how the ODP is working. Let's sit down together and talk about the problems that we see. Let's see if there are problems. If there are problems, let's try to uh, address them together. Um, this is what we outline. Uh, we'd like this, this, and this improved. And if it's not improved, we may end up doing something different. But the point is, and that's the same with the SRA thing as well. And so um, the issue is that the uh, transparency means many things. It's openness, uh, it's honesty, it's lack of mystery, uh, and, it's, and it's respect. And so that's, that's another example of, of just by doing things in a more respectful way, there'll, there'll be more transparency. Um, there'll be uh, conflict of interest policies that are very, very firm um, and essential. You know, this is a nonprofit organization, so by definition, uh, there needs to be stuff like that. You know, interested directors have to recuse themselves when the nonprofit organization <clears throat> goes out and has contracts. You have to make sure the nonprofit organization gets fair market value when they contract with a, with a for-profit vendor. Um, they have to go out, again, ensure there's fair market value, but they also have to do a survey to make sure that there were not other uh, vendors out there that, that could have uh, provided better fair market value, i.e., you know, same services for a lesser price. Those kinds of things um, will be open and transparent under my regime. Now, you, you use the term conflict of interest, and I want to give you the floor. Are you talking about what some candidates, for example, former candidate Paula Point said, uh, talking about the conflict of interest between USSFF and uh, some and MLS? Are you or just referring to something more general? No, I, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm never someone that just says, you know, I'm an attorney and mm -hmm. I'm never going to say anything, A, for a soundbite uh, without any, anything to back it up, and B, you know, without, uh, you know, uh, 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 whether or not it's for a soundbite um, with evidence. So I'm not accusing anyone. What I am saying is that um, I'm going to ensure that proper, you know, I, 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 I'm not a nonprofit lawyer per se, but I do a lot of work with nonprofits. Um, a partner of mine sits right next door to me, so I'm in his office all the time. He is our mm -hmm. nonprofit lawyer. I do a lot of stuff for for-profits with nonprofits. I get the principles, right? And, and so it's very, very important that if a, a board member uh, is what's called an interested director, that they have to recuse themselves. Um, and what I'm saying is there's going to be a tight ship here in terms of there's never going to be a question about whether or not there is uh, uh, a conflict of interest from, from a legal perspective. Everybody's going to do things the right way. That's all I'm saying. Um, mm. I think things could be tighter than they are. I also think when I say conflict of interest is that uh, I'm going to be a, um, you know, a, a true FIFA reformer because I have no FIFA ties. Mm. And I do think... I do think that the, you know the current incumbent, um, and, and this is not this is not a legal conflict. But what I'm saying is the fact that um, he's also on the FIFA executive committee that causes a conflict in terms of 
your ability to advocate for the United States and the United States Soccer Federation because you also have responsibilities to act for FIFA. Again, that's not a concerning legal conflict. That's just a con- business conflict that I think right. doesn't serve us so well. So I'm going to be free of any of those conflicts. My ethics are completely impeccable. I'm, I'm uncorruptible. So um, we're going to advocate, you know, when I say about what do we love about this game, the international language, what do we hate about this game? Mm. We, hate, we hate corruption, right? right the most yeah. beautiful game in the world, but it's the most corrupt game in the world. And what we're going to stand for is American principles, uh, democracy and fairness and, and honesty, and we're going to try to um, help clean up this game by spreading uh, that, those principles. And we are not going to be in any way... Um, tacitly or otherwise complicit with any other things going on out there. So I think that part of it is going to be good because we are going to be true true reformers of the world game. No, absolutely. And we talked about how the U.S. is different from the world when it comes to soccer. And one of those topics that seems to be the casual fans go to is how the United States uh, has a closed soccer system. And you mentioned... Uh, in other interviews, that you will meet up with each league individually and you'll see to find a common ground between them. And some candidates have called for an open system. You've called it more of a complex issue. How would you go about dealing with the rising call uh, for an open system? You're talking about promotion relegation? Yes, sir. Okay. All right. <laughs> I, actually, I actually like open system better because I've heard promotion relegation in my dreams. Um, I like like that phrase. phrase. First of all, I want to say that uh, I'm a complete supporter of of, the whole game in this country, including professional soccer. You can't Mm -hmm. be a world-class country in the game unless you have a robust professional setup. And the reality is when I first saw that pro team when I was a kid and then dropped everything to play, and then that team, they were called the Boston Minutemen, and when they started to fail at age 15, I wrote to the NASL commissioner of that time, a guy named Phil Woosnam, about, you know, his tears were streaming down my cheek saying, this is why they're failing. And he, and he <laughs> sent in a, a, uh, uh, an executive from New York to hear me, you know, a 15-year-old kid about it. And then, you know, I, 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 uh, I went away to college to Cornell to, to play, but I had had a part-time job with uh, the New England team and the, the NASL team at that time, and I used to have to come home for their games because they made me, it was pretty exciting, they made me the official scorer. I would give out assists and stuff like that at age 17. And so <laughs> ultimately awesome. they told me, yeah, I used to have to take a Greyhound bus home from Ithaca, New York. So that was a long ride. But um, <laughs> they told me that I had to, you know, that they didn't like me showing up. Uh, they wanted me there more often. And so um, I, would, I would get home at like 6 in the morning on a Saturday because I'd leave at 6 at night on a Friday and then go back, you know, the next morning. And so faced with that dilemma, I transferred. That's why I transferred back to Boston and to Brandeis because I was going to lose that job. Uh, with the pro team and then when the team ended up going to Jacksonville and I didn't move on and and after college and had a lot of injuries I uh, deferred law school and I chased a dream both playing which I reached for a millisecond and and um, you know making a team successful and I deferred law school and joined the, the real Baltimore Blast from 1982 to 84 where I lived a dream and 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 helped make that team you know still to this day one of the most successful has a, has a U.S. attendance record that stands to this day and and so those are examples Three examples just from age 15 to 22 um, that that I, I arranged my life for pro soccer. You know, I've been a pro soccer, pro, you know, in this country proselytizer my whole life. So, so I'm completely 
supportive of professional soccer making it here, and I want all leagues to make it, and I will certainly do what I can and meet with them and all that kind of thing. Now, promotion relegation. Um, it is a complex answer. I was on the BBC a few weeks ago, and he said, let me ask you this in a lightning, rod question, a lightning round question, and I, I said, you can't answer that in lightning rod. Um, you know, it's, it's a great <laughs> thing. It is, it is um, what makes the game go round in the world in a lot of ways. It's enthralling. Uh, as I said before, in that, in that May weekend, in the last week, when I watched the Premier League, and a lot of people watch the Premier League, whatever league it is, La Liga, Bundesliga, people are looking to see not who wins the championship on that last weekend, but who's going to stay up and who's going to go down. It's exciting. It's dramatic. I think it's great. It's what makes the game go around. Um, the pro-rel people have, have an added valid point since the U.S. lost, and that is when you play for survival every week, you get more of a cutting edge sure, sure. as compared to when you know you're going to be in the top division. And I have MLS personnel that, that actually on the QT tell me that. Um, and so, and in other words, from particular teams, I'm not saying from the league office. And so I get that, all true, okay? But, but again, I'm not a soundbite guy. And the reality is you cannot take that principle and then just snap your fingers and say, oh, yeah, we're going to have promotion relegation tomorrow. Right. It's absolutely impossible. You cannot divorce yourself from the economic reality of how sports are structured in this country. And there is a reality of, of, of what that is. And some people say, well, if, if an MLS owner leaves, so be it. Well, I'll tell you what. When I left the Baltimore Blast in 1984 uh, and the NESL folded in 1985, I was there to witness from 1985 to 1996 when we did not have a top uh, professional league in this country, and it was a wasteland, a wasteland for yeah. talent. I played with a guy in Baltimore named Michael Collins, the best American player I ever played with. Very few people have probably heard of him because he made his way in indoor soccer because there wasn't anything really going on outdoor soccer. He was an American player at the time who was not a defender but an offensive midfielder who had incredible finishing and um, skills in front of the in front of the goal, and I think his career could have been, um, you know, much much more significant if we had a Division One league. He was a victim of that, like so many other players were a victim of that, and and there was nowhere for fans to go either. So you can't just say, oh, big deal, if M MLS owners pull out. I don't want to live in that wasteland again, and no, none of you do either. Um, we do not want a situation where, we, where we, we don't have a top league. The other thing that I would say is, and, and I've said this before and you've probably heard it, but it's, it's the true example. My first Premier League game was Charlton Athletic at Charlton Athletic at the Valley, and 27,000 people marched out of the town to the Valley. And it was an incredible experience. They beat Norwich and uh, for nothing. I'll never forget it. And then a couple of years later, you know, Charlton was uh, relegated. But you know what? They get relegated to the second division, the minor leagues, whatever you want to call it, because that's what we call it here. And um, yet 25,000 people march to the Valley every week that next year. And why? Because it's tribal, because it's generational. And in this country, you know, regrettably, but we're just not there yet. Soccer is not yet inculcated in the culture so well that your typical fan in Boston or Seattle or Milwaukee would automatically go in in 90 percent numbers to those games if the team was relegated to the minor you know what we'd call triple a here or you know whatever second division and so that's a reality and i'm not going to for soundbite deny that reality 
yes in principle but it's going to have to um you know it's 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 going to have to be studied and it's going to have to be done correctly and i want to tell you something i'm representing a a major international club um you know who i can't reveal right now but they that they they're they uh would be interested in you know starting a lower division team here in this country and they're interested in promotion and relegation ultimately but they even from their distant um uh, setting they recognize it can't happen right away you know it's something it's something for the horizon no i i think you mentioned something critical here and, and that is the cultural aspect of u.s soccer but for example up here so this is something i've i talked to armand not too long about this but i i lived in dallas we had fc dallas the professional top division mls side then i moved to Madison, Wisconsin, where I attend the university. When it comes to soccer, it's all about the Premier League and the Champions League, and it's got nothing to do with any American league, nothing. And now, granted, there aren't any even smaller league clubs. There's something in Milwaukee that's too far away. But when it comes to Madison, you talk about American soccer, people look at you as if you're speaking a foreign language. But you say Manchester City, oh, they have a clue. And, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, for me personally, I've started to... Re- reveal and realize the cultural aspect is very real and I don't know how people are going to develop that cultural aspect if the system doesn't open up or at least have the second and third division to be allowed to flourish a little bit more because you have this pending lawsuit with the NESL and I want to ask you what do you do you have any comments on the current situation with USSF and the NESL I mean, it's it's an interesting case. I read the first brief um, from from uh, I shouldn't say I didn't read a page to page from the NASL. I thought there was interesting stuff in there. I thought some of it was a little less than than accurate. Um, um, you know, as an advocate uh, sta- stating a case, and I don't know how it's going to come down. Uh, quite honestly, and it's probably not appropriate to <clears throat> to comment on pending litigation. Um, but I, I disagree with you that. Um, that we can't create a culture, um, we can't create a culture without without an open system. I mean, look look what's happened with the Seattle Sounders. Look what happened in Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta it's blown my mind because what I've always you know what you've always heard about Atlanta is it's a college sports town. It's not a good pro sports town. You've had two or three two or three NHL teams fail there. You've had you know the Hawks never draw that well. Even the Braves, when they were dominant in the '90s, they didn't sell out most of their games. And look what happened this year. It's it's extraordinary. Hats off to all the people in Atlanta for that. And and so you've got teams that are being inculcated into the cultures here. And um, you know that that's not happening in an open system. It, in other words, they don't need it to do it. And in, in mm-hmm. fact, what, what they need is they need. They need they need some sort of permanence. If you look at the history of pro soccer in this country, you've had you know extraordinary examples of teams having ephemeral success. You had the Cosmos draw seventy seven thousand six hundred ninety one people to a game against the Fort Lauderdale Strikers in nineteen seventy seven. You had Minnesota Kicks and the Tampa Bay Rowdies drawing between thirty and forty thousand and the yep. Seattle Sounders mm-hmm. between thirty and forty thousand fans a game. The question becomes, can they? maintain it so mm, when teams yeah. like the chicago sting when it won a championship everybody came to, to to comiskey park the question though is what happens when a team has an inevitable downturn on the field 
right. right? Will the fans stay? And what happened in the old days was, no, it was a fad. They didn't have time to set down their roots. Nowadays, it looks like they're setting down their roots. And so these teams need the permanence to do it. One thing I have learned, I was out in um, Lake Tahoe um, uh, for uh, the, the U.S. Adult um, Soccer Association, AGM, and I was in my hotel room, and they have a USL team in Reno. And uh, it was very, very cool because they got a lot of time on the sports, and they got, you know, I saw some highlights, and, you know, they had a nice little packed attendance in a small stadium. And the reality is that um, what, I, what I saw was the value of having these lower division teams in smaller communities because it mirrors, it does start to mirror what happens in uh, in in England and other places like that, right? Where a town, every town has their their own team, and I think that's great. And it and it should it should occur. There was a time earlier in my life where I didn't think it was good because I thought it it took away from the ability for for, for pro, pro soccer to be accepted. For instance, there was one when I came back from Baltimore. Someone came to me, and again, the NSL had folded, and someone said, "Hey, will you be part of this ownership group? You know, we're going to start this team in this lower league." and um, you know, our budget is if we make 4,000 fans a game, uh, then we'll be a success. And I was like, no, no, because the Boston media will not look at it like as a success at 4,000. They'll look at it like soccer can only draw 4,000. And so I was kind of against those smaller teams. But I see now the benefit in smaller communities for, for that kind of thing. So I champion all these leagues and all, all these roles. I do not think you need an open system, though, for teams in Boston, New York, and uh, Atlanta, and Seattle, and Portland, and all that stuff. To um, if you manage the team right, if you have the product, um, uh, you know, a good product. Uh, if you capture the fancy and you're sincere and you have good community relations, you're you're going to be a success, and then you can build from there. No, I mean, I, I would so. def. Sorry to interrupt, but I would definitely agree on oh, no with you on the on the premise that it's a very complex issue. I've I've tangled back and forth because I do realize if I were an MLS owner, I'd be very scared because you've invested. I mean, for example, LAFC. What would happen if you did suddenly open the system? They just invested in a brand new stadium and they had a bad year and they go under. Well, you know. The investment, you know, it, this is something that you can't have, cannot happen overnight, and it will not over, happen overnight. But it, it's a very interesting conversation. I I don't even need to comment on that. I, I agree with what you said just now, 100. percent It is a very interesting conversation, and like the client I'm I'm um, I'm representing, you know, they get it, they understand mm-hmm. it from there. That this is, this would be something ultimately that would be great. It can't happen right away, but but I just yeah, I agree 100 percent with what you're saying. And I also do agree with what you said about the the smaller cities. I mean, we saw Louisville City who won the USL, and you see them pack that baseball stadium, convert into soccer field, wherever that is. But it lo- it, it was pretty amazing to see. How, I mean, we're slowly starting to see these in these USL uh, areas. I mean, we saw it in Cincinnati. We've seen it in Sacramento, Louisville City, and I think it is. I think it is a positive step towards um, the development of uh, uh, the game in this country. I totally agree. There was a time where I didn't, but I totally agree. And by the way, I'll put a plug in for my friend Steve Livingston, who helped run Louisville City. <laughs> shameless plug. Talk. Yeah, no, he's like, well, that's not shameless because not for me, but I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing it for him. But yeah. he's 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 a, he's a good guy. Um, but uh, yes, I would agree. Um, 
I, 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 again, 100% agree with you. There was a time I wouldn't, but, but now um, I think that, that uh, uh, it's exciting. It's actually exciting to see the stuff happen uh, in, in, in cities like that. Uh, I, I just want to quickly comment on or ask you about the women's game because you, you have this quote about how if Juventus and Chelsea come in and play, they're going to lay down grass. But, you know, the women, for example, are having to play on, on turf. And I think playing on turf, even, you know, MLS standards, playing on turf is absolutely a mistake. It's terrible for the game. Uh, if you watch Seattle, yep. it's just terrible to watch on television, too. The jerseys kind of blend with the turf. What else would you do with the women's game to help promote and grow and bring them to this, you know, um, fair among the men and women? You're talking about the women's national team or the women's yeah. game in general? Well, I would say both. So, I mean, the women's national team, I mean, on day one, we're going to equal the working conditions, equalize the working conditions. It's, you know, I met with the Athletes Council in October in the, in the, before the Panama game, you know, a few days before the horrific result in Trinidad. And, um, you know, the, the common ground right away we had, I mean, it was incredible because uh, I didn't expect walking into that room that we'd be talking about artificial turf, but um, it, it was that they had just signed the agreement. And they weren't unhappy, evidently, with the, the economic terms of the agreement, but they were unhappy with a kind of a loophole in there about playing on artificial turf. And there's aspirational language in there um, of the type that uh, is uh, that 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 said that they would federation, I guess, would would attempt not to have them play on turf too much. But it wasn't hard and fast language. And lo and behold, they were suddenly uh, forced in a very short period of time to play a number of times on on turf. And that, to me, gets changed right away because um, under my regime, uh, the women will only play on turf as much as the men, or put another way, the men will play on turf as much as the women. And my hope in both cases is it's zero times. Um, I hate turf, hate pl- hated playing on it, more injuries. My older son, when he was a uh, uh, U15 development uh, academy player played 30 this is the way it is in the northeast here 31 out of 32 games on turf and at age 15 in the spring oh that's off the end of that season he had he had an l5 s1 bulging disc and almost had to have major back surgery at age 15 and there's no other reason um you know there's no other reason i can think of but him because he had, had no congenital issue um uh you know other than turf causing it so uh, my, my belief is um, th- that that's what it did. It did it, and I don't like turf. So right. uh, there's common ground there. Uh, th- th- that's going to be changed right away. Per diem, travel benefit, all that kind of stuff has to be made equal right away. So that's right. number one. Um, otherwise, in terms of the women's game, actually, let's not just about the women's game. Let's talk about women, right? It's mm. going to be uh, equalized. You know, th- this game is heavily represented by women. So, but there aren't there aren't enough of them. In, in the executive capacities, there aren't enough women, uh, you know, the, the, in front offices, there aren't enough women who are DOCs of youth clubs. All of that stuff should be addressed, so much so that little girls who play soccer should be able to aspire to either be a player or a coach or an administrator in this game, just like yeah. little boys can. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and that, stuff will, will be, that stuff will definitely be equalized. Um, the other thing I would say in particular 
with regard to N- NWSL. I, I represent um, it on many matters, not 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 solely um, the Boston Breakers, and so I know that league well, and I've represented a player for the Breakers. Um, and you know, I think U.S. Soccer needs to support that league more. You know, we're losing mm. players. We just lost two the other day um, to, to foreign leagues, uh, to France uh, and other places, and. Um, we need to make sure that this is the league that women want to play in. Uh, and I think U.S. soccer can support uh, this league more financially, and it should. And I heard that uh, U.S. soccer has uh, approximately $4 million in the bank from the A&E deal, and some of that should be used to uh, help this league some more, in my opinion. I agree with you 100%, Steve. I mean, we... We talk about the women's game, but I think there's so much potential for it to be so much so much better, especially in the NWSL. I think it just needs a little bit of help, a little bit of push in the right direction uh, to uh, end up just end up being at, at the top. I mean, we, we, we did see many, like you said, many players leave for, for foreign leagues, and I mean, they seem to enjoy it more there than they do here. So, I mean, I, I think it has to be a priority to make this a destination spot of sorts. Right. No, I t- totally agree, and and we need to have these women, you know, feel like they're really professional, and um, we need to get the quality of the game up. And so I think there's got to be a, a a bigger commitment than there is. I mean, I got to salute the federation for, you know, for for d- devising the league and all that kind of stuff. But now it's time to step up with some some more to to prop it up, firm it up, I should say. And this is the last question: the letter that you had sent out. Why did you originally write it, and what what are you trying, or what are you hoping the letter does? What letter is that? I'm sorry. The so the, was it about two months ago, Armand? No, the oversight. The, the oversight. It was about a month ago. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was a few weeks ago. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I mean, there have been a few letters that <laughs> that have seen public uh, airways, and there have been some that ha- that haven't. Um, so. <laughs> First of all, that was not my letter per se. That was a partner of mine. Ah, so it okay. was not under my name. It was not under my name, but it was definitely a partner in my law firm. Um, look, uh, what's happened here is there have been three plus rule changes midstream in this election. And then, see, that's another example of how a nonprofit should be run. Right. But I have very seasoned. I have very seasoned, you know, campaign people as well. And they and and you know, one used to be Ted Kennedy's press secretary, and he's. He's chief strategist for a Massachusetts congressman named Seth Moulton, who you'll hear a lot about. And, you know, he and my campaign manager say to me, they've never seen an election like this, ever. And, and this mm. is what they do. You know, for me, it's all a case of first impression. They've, they, you, you ought not to make rules up on the fly, um, not be able to answer questions pertaining to an election when you're asked to say, we'll get back to you on that. You have to have election rules in place. And so um, when I was uh, sitting at my desk working at 3.30 on a, uh, a Saturday, whenever that was, three or four weeks ago, and got a stunning you know, articulation that went to all candidates about another rule change, like it, it seems like they're making rules on, on the fly, you know, I think a lot of people on my campaign team said that this is just you know, not uh, appropriate and it's not um, professional. And so, they're, they're, you know, it's not, it's not accusing anyone. It's just a, a question of whether, the, look, they're used to having uncontested elections 
whether they're prepared for this. Mm. So we think that, and now all these other candidates agree, right? They've, they've jumped right. on with their own letters, right. that professional independent oversight is called for here, and not just during the weekend, but ultimately for the whole campaign, the rest of the campaign. So that's, that's all we were saying. We're saying, look, let's, let's make sure that the candidates and all the voters um, and, and the public and the media can have faith in this election. That's all. It's not making an accusation. It's, it's that you guys need help. Please admit you need help. And let's do this, make sure we do this right. And we just want, we just want, we just want to wrap, wrap it up with you, Steve. First off, I just want to thank you for joining us again, taking the time out. You're busy. I know you're busy as hell. But thanks well, we're, in the, we're in the last already. month, so it's it is crazy. But I really wanted to do this for you guys. You're good guys, and uh, I uh, uh, it's my pleasure, and I appreciate you taking the time as well because I'm sure you're talking to a lot of candidates. And for, for all the voters, I mean, when I first announced this in February, it looked like it was going to be me and the incumbent, and it was going to be two candidates. And now the incumbent's not running, which is extraordinary change. Uh, seven months later, eight months later, but we actually what is it? Eight months later. Um, but we have eight candidates, shockingly, and yeah. uh, so it, I think it's, I think it's trying for everyone, uh, including the media, like you guys, and including the voters. So, um, so I appreciate everything you're doing as well. Absolutely, Steve. And again, I want to thank you for joining us. And over here, we actually do a shameless plug, so you can plug away with everything. Just plug us where we can find you, where we can find your message, all that good stuff. Oh sure, okay. Uh, <laughs> so my my website is um, uh, www.stevedans2018.com. My um, my Twitter handle. Not that I tweet all that much. I'm not as prolific as Eric. I can tell you that. But um, <laughs> at, 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 at but you know I don't have that facility with with Twitter. But at stevegans2018. It's s t e v uh, s t e v e g a n s 2018. Um, and uh yeah i mean those those are the two things and uh very much appreciated guys and 